This is what we remember, how they made us laugh, how they provoked us, how they worried us and loved us. Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. Grief, mental anguish, sorrow. Over the last few years, we have been collectively experiencing grief. Children killed in school shootings, the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, and others. COVID deaths in the early months when there was pain we could feel but could not touch. Wars across the globe, famine, refugees left to languish in border disputes, anger among citizens leading to violence and death. How do we think about grief privately and publicly? In this Short Fuse podcast conversation, I'm talking with Diane Alters, a poet, a former journalist, and a college professor. Her exquisite book of poetry, Breath Suspended, was published this year, and a critic commented, what it means to write at the aperture of grief. Edward Hirsch is a beloved American poet. His book, Gabriel, a Poem, published in 2014, is a book-length elegy for his son. He has written 10 books of poetry and is the author of five prose books. His most recent, 100 Poems to Break Your Heart. Edward Hirsch has taught creative writing and is president of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, a position he has held since 2002. Diane and Edward met when they were both students at Grinnell College. Welcome to both of you. It's lovely to have you in conversation together. Edward, Max Porter writes in Grief is the Thing with Feathers that moving on as a concept is for stupid people. (laughs) Because any sensible person knows grief is a long-term project. Grief is the fabric of selfhood and beautifully chaotic. And Reverend Sidney Lovett, Uncle Sid, as he was affectionately known, was a beloved chaplain at Yale. He died in 1979 when he was 89 years old. He wrote an article entitled The Vocation of Grief that appeared in the December 1922 issue of Atlantic Monthly. His young wife and child had both died tragically in an automobile accident. It begins, this reflects a conversation with a professor at Union Theological Seminary. They owe their feeling that much of the literature concerned with the fact of grief is largely meaningless, just as the verbal expression of grief either has become merely conventional or has lost that element of insight which conditions true sympathy. They come to rest as they take their rise in the soil of experience. Edward, you have told me that you don't believe, if that's the correct word, in the five stages of grief either. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Perhaps this is a place where we can start our conversation. People, yes, I I don't like that. I don't like that division. Um. It's very convenient, not true to experience, but it 
it, it does say something about Americans and how quickly they want to get over grief. And so the idea that there are stages is very appealing to people, especially who are not suffering from grief themselves. Um, the idea that there are five stages then means you, you can just get over it. And of course, they really want to collapse those stages. And whenever anything catastrophic happens in our country, you you soon notice that everyone starts talking about healing right away, like the first minute. They start talking to you about healing and start talking to everyone about healing without any sense um, that it's not that there isn't such a thing as healing, but there's not such a thing as there is. It's not that there isn't some movement. Um, but the idea that it's wrapped up and packaged and then moved on to another stage is just not true to experience. And what had happened because of this is it makes people who are suffering from grief feel ashamed um, because they're not getting over it somehow. Everyone just wants the person who's suffering back. Um, and they want you to be normal because they want you to reassure them. They want everyone to be normal to reassure them that everything's okay. Um, I don't think grief stays exactly the same for anyone. I think it does. It is a process. I do think it keeps moving, but it's not easily divided up into stages, and it's not something you exactly get over. Mm. Yes. Diane, your poetry was written for your beautiful son, Mando, who was found dead in Mexico City just as he was beginning his career as a journalist. There's a numbness of feeling at the time of tragic death. Grief adheres to the body. How did you begin writing poetry? Did it did it come from some unbridled force? Yeah, I I think you could say it did in a way. I had written prose for many years and journalism and academic writing, and I could only write in short bursts in poetry. But I had a a compulsion to write and. Poetry was kind of the, the one form I could grasp that helped me put words down on paper. So I started to study it seriously, and that, that helped a great deal. Perhaps you can read one of your poems. Oh, yes, I should explain. I started to, um, I went to Lima, Peru. Um, because my husband was teaching there. He's an anthropologist. And I began to study the poems of Cesar Vallejo in Spanish with a young Peruvian graduate student. So we did this every afternoon for two months at a stretch. And um, I, I learned a lot from that. So I'll read this poem that came out of my time in Lima. <clears throat> Water in an eye. Vallejo gave me an almost indecipherable word, emposarse, a verb that puts water in an eye and leaves it just under the rim, so no one has to say what eye water becomes when it spills over lash and cheek. It wells up, quiet, like a reservoir back of a dam, posed to inundate entire canyons, ancient civilizations whole lives. A poet told me North Americans shouldn't write tears into a poem because that's mawkish. And even in Latin America, only Neruda could get away with it. Well, actually, Vallejo got away with it even more deftly than Neruda. 
But in Buenos Aires, where tears are abundant, una lágrima is a drop of espresso in hot milk. I can't find a tear in new Argentine poetry. So when a busybody down the street wondered why I would leave home to study Spanish, instead of buying an app to translate on the spot, who needs more than English, really? I couldn't explain. The truth is, I don't know why I've forced my brain to butt against cinder blocks of verbs and tiny lice-like words that inch into unexpected places where even the regular veers irregular late at night when no one has the energy to decipher my Game Boy Spanish, including me. So I might have missed the tears because I read Spanish so slowly, well enough to slam translators, but not nearly sufficient to describe all I need at the grocery store, which a first grader holding mama's hand can do. My son could do that. He could write the hell out of Spanish, carve jokes with it, drink on it, and still go strong at 1 a.m., except for that one last early morning when Spanish was likely the last human sound he ever heard. Emposarse means to form pools, which means I on the verge of spilling water, which means to Vallejo a whole life fits into that eye and pools form. But even there, he doesn't write tears, not in that poem. Hmm. Beautiful poem, Diane. I'm really struck that um, Vallejo becomes your Virgil and that um, you're, you don't start writing about your son, but about Vallejo and the word that we don't, a word we don't have in English. And that this becomes a kind of vehicle, instead of looking at it directly, you look at it slant through the idea of tears. And that gets you to your son, which, of course, is always on your mind. But I think that's one of the ways that poetry works at a kind of, at a kind of angle. Edward, in the introduction to 100 Poems to Break Your Heart, you write, poetry companions us. Poems are written in solitude but they reach out to others, which makes poetry a social act. It rises out of solitude to meet another. Poems of terrible sadness and loss trouble and challenge us. Gabriel, your poem for your son, tears at our hearts. It's beauty. It's expression of your deep love for your only son. The pain is evident in every word. You write, he left in a rainstorm and never came back. Perhaps you could read some of, read to us from this poem. The whole time I was writing my poem for Gabriel, working on my poem for Gabriel, I was aware that, that I wanted to tell Gabriel's story from my point of view as a father, but I was all too aware that I'm not the only person this ever happened to nor am I the one who suffered the most. People go through much worse things. And I was trying to think of a metaphor for what I think is going on in grief because no one escapes. Some people seem to escape when they're young. Mostly people don't even then. But certainly no one escapes from some monumental loss. It's built into, into our mortality. 
And so I was trying to think about how this was operating, and I finally came up with a metaphor for it in this, in this poem. Freud calls it, I'm using a phrase here from Freud, the work of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. I did not know the work of mourning is like carrying a bag of cement up a mountain at night. The mountaintop is not in sight because there is no mountaintop. Poor Sisyphus grief. I did not know I would struggle through a ragged underbrush without an upward path because there is no path. There's only a blunt rock with a river to fall into and time with its medieval chambers, time with its jagged edges and blunt instruments. I did not know the work of mourning is a labor in the dark we carry inside ourselves. Though sometimes when I sleep, I'm with him again, and then I wake. Poor Sisyphus grief, I'm not ready for your heaviness cemented to my body. Look closely and you will see almost everyone carrying bags of cement on their shoulders. That's why it takes courage to get out of bed in the morning and climb into the day. Mm. Diane, you wrote a poem in response to Gabriel. Perhaps you can tell us about that. Um, yes, and, and I I do want to say that that um, both my husband Mario and I were very moved by the by the book Gabriel and and by the image of carrying a bag of cement. And I especially appreciate. Ed, that you're talking about um, recognizing that other people are also carrying that. And that's not something I I saw or heard about until Mondo died. And then people I thought I was close to and became even more, I became even closer to them as they told me about the burdens they, they'd carried, the people they loved who had died that they hadn't talked about. So Yes. Um, what I did is I wrote a poem that imagined our two sons as friends. And in this poem, Gabriel is described first in stanzas from the book and Mondo is described second. The epigraph and the title are from a poem by Walt Whitman, starting from Pominog, in which Whitman's speaker describes himself as a lover of populous pavements or a lover of cities. I wanted, I realized later I wanted to embrace both Gabriel and Mondo at once, and I could only do that in a poem. So, uh, lovers of populous pavements. What are you doing, young man? Edward Hirsch wrote in grief for Gabriel, his son who died the year before mine, having lived some details the same. I remember the boy who needed beanie babies, then graduated to Transformers comic books, and anime cards. I remember the boy who hugged a magic dragon he called Draggy, traded Beanie Babies and Pokemon cards. He found his natural habitat in the dense forest of buildings hovering over the stores of Manhattan. He shunned the snow and mountains for the throb and flow of cities, New York, Buenos Aires, Mexico. In rollicking noise, they debate which house, which bar, where to meet friends, 
how to squeeze the last drop of joy and delight from concrete canyons they adored as they held in common their absolute absorption in the city, their need for stories, parents who loved them fiercely, and one last party gone awry. He loved tossing coins into claw games, the noisy clang of slot machines, the soft light of casinos. He pleaded for one more quarter to grasp the doll, the stuffed spider, the badge. He loved the Las Vegas of neon noise. He loved strong coffee, specialty beers, Tamar's oatmeal cookies, California burgers, spicy Thai, Indian and Mexican food. He loved strong coffee, Burnett and Cola, Mario's tacos and El Pollo Borracho, cheeseburgers sometimes without the cheese. Upstairs in his room, half-eaten plates of food, open takeout containers, uncapped drinks, stained sheets, clothes strewn on the floor. Downstairs in his room, clothes crumpled where he shed them, pizza box open, no floor exposed, no path to the bed, where he lay chatting with friends on a screen, as if the mess were a necessary prelude to an exciting social life. He left the house during a rainstorm and never came home. Where was he going in such a hurry? He left the house for a party, persuaded by friends, though he said he would stay home to rest for work tomorrow. We kept calling his phone. It went straight to voicemail. This is Gabe. Leave a message. His phone called me. I called back. To police in a language I stopped speaking. A young man, an elevator. No, he is not alive. It was too late to warn him, but it already happened. He was going ahead alone. I did not know the work of mourning is like carrying a bag of cement up a mountain at night. The mountaintop is not in sight because there is no mountaintop. Poor Sisyphus grief. We warned him many times not the last time, except to embrace his plan to take it easy in the city. Going ahead alone without us, we carry the bag of cement up, up, no mountaintop in sight. This is what we remember, how they made us laugh, how they provoked us, how they worried us and loved us, how he hugged us, hands on shoulders, boots clomped on our soft feet. Laughter burst from the chest, shoulders straight, spine upright, in motion so determined, so forceful, he seemed at a perpetual slant, running headlong with his enthusiasms. Mom, mom, he might have said. I met Gabriel and we walked the city for Edward Hirsch. That's so beautiful, Diane. It's so touching the way you intermingle. Gabriel is a person and your son is a person. And see, you sometimes can't tell which is which. It's really, mm-hmm. it's really a who. It's <laughs> really the parallels are I love the parallels. It's really striking. I I think they would have talked at long stretches. I think they would have loved uh, hanging out. They were different in some ways, but they had so many similarities. You said this when we met that you thought they would have been friends. I wasn't so sure because your son was much more academic and and literary. But anyway, I I think the parallels are really 
parallels are very touching. Yeah, those those rooms. <laughs> those rooms. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> and how how difficult was it for you to write something like this? Um, I think I read when the book came out, and it is just so powerful that that you had really struggled to to work on this. I, I didn't have a plan. After Gabriel died, I, I couldn't, I tried to go back to work, but I couldn't function. And my partner, who lives in Atlanta, and the vice president of the Guggenheim convinced me to take a leave of absence because I was freaking everyone out. <laughs> everyone was very sympathetic, but I was just walking around with that 50-mile stare. And it is a place of work. So I took a leave to get my head together, and I moved down to Atlanta. I'm I'm a worker, and so I, I like I didn't know what to do with myself. So I I began to write a prose document, which was a kind of biography of Gabriel, and um, and so that gave me something to do every day, as if I were a writer again. I, I went to a coffee shop. And I talked to my ex-wife and I talked to Gabriel's friends and I talked to my sisters and I, I just tried. It was all so confusing that I, I tried to get it all straight, all the schools and the medicines. And I just left myself out of it. But when I was doing it, I felt I was with Gabriel. Mm-hmm. When I was not doing it, um, I, didn't, I didn't feel comforted at all. And I can't say that writing it actually comforted me. I was aware that writing is not the person. And writing can't bring a person back. Um, it can do something, but it's not that. And so for four months, that's what I did. And then I, I showed it to my partner, Lori, and she said, I don't know what you're asking me. But she goes, dude, you're not a memoirist. <laughs> really funny. It was really funny. She goes, this is not a book and you are not a memoirist. Um, because I had left myself out of it. I was just trying to literally tell Gabriel's story. But she said, you know, you might want to try and write poems out of it. And I I went back to work at the Guggenheim, but I didn't do any poetry events for a year. I couldn't bring myself to go out in public. Um, And so I still had to figure out what to do with myself. And I started writing some poems out of the book because I had it. And I, I was... I don't know how to explain this. I was filled with revulsion. The idea that I would have, in every book I've had, like elegies for my father, or elegies for my grandparents, mixed in with other kinds of poems, with love poems and city poems and sonnets. The idea of having some poems about Gabriel mixed in with other poems seemed really wrong to me. And then I got the idea that maybe I could try a book-length poem. But the first question I had was, was I ruthless enough to do it? Because you can't, you can't actually be sentimental and write a good poem. 19th century, it was quite common for people to lose poems in the 19th century. And the history of poetry is littered with sentimental poems about lost children. So the question is, there's something a bit cruel in poetry about exposing things. And I knew that I would be exposing things about Gabriel that he wouldn't want people to know. Um, but I also thought that Gabriel was going to be forgotten and he had left very little impact in the world, but he'd had a tremendous impact on me and on a few other people. And I couldn't bear that he'd be forgotten. 
And so I just decided that I would go all in and write this book length poem. And then it and then and then and then it began and began to take shape. And I tried to create a form of uh, three, three line stanzas without punctuation, ten to a section that were more, what was more like what Gabriel was like, his spontaneity, his energy. And I realized that to write this, and this became exciting to me, instead of making Gabriel more like poetry, I needed to make poetry more like Gabriel. Mm-hmm. And and I think Diane and I feel the same way about this, but I'll have to ask you about, about it, Diane. The kinds of kids like Mondo and Gabriel are, are not really present in American poetry. Like when you start looking around for models of who's written about kids like this, not just their deaths, but actually what they were like, you find very little, very mm-hmm. little. Um, and so that became a kind of interesting challenge. And the part that I really took kind of jubilation about was remembering what he was at, what Gabriel was actually like, the kind of person he was. And bringing that into poetry became exciting to me. Um, but I was aware that it was also a violation and it was not Gabriel's story from Gabriel's point of view or from his mother's point of view. It was from Gabriel's point of life from my point of view as a father. And, and as a result, my poem is 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 a father's is a father's elegy. You know, it, it's interesting. I re- recall, I believe I was in elementary school when I read Death But Not Proud, uh, John Gunther's book about his son who died of a, a brain tumor. And I, I remember just, I remember bringing it to school one day and reading it under my desk, you know, putting it down. To listen. I was always getting in trouble for reading. But, you know, I, I looked, I, I looked that up and when when he when John Gunther wrote that book, his publisher, you know, and he published several books, didn't want to publish it because they said it was too intimate. They said no one no one will be interested in this book. You know, it's sad, it's intimate, tells us, you know, the story. And of course, it became a very well-known book. Somebody else published it. He gave the money to cancer research. And in his obituary, uh, with all that he John Gunther himself had achieved, they said one probably what was most lasting was this book, you know, Death Be Not Proud. So it's also the title came from John Don. Yes. And and John Don had given something to John Gunther, which is he gave him a, a, a way to name something that he couldn't otherwise name. And Don himself had lost lost many children. Mm. There's a there's a artist named a sculptor. He, he calls himself a sculptor of time and loss. His name is Dario Robletto, and I heard him. He did a uh, a pro, an on being conversation with Krista Tippett, and he talks about how important memory and remembering. He talks about remember to remember. I quote him: "I'm overwhelmed when I think of how many people have ever been on this planet." And the actual tiny, tiny fraction of them that are actually remembered to this day, nobody remembers even two or three generations down the road. It's easy to start forgetting. So memory has a spiritual dimension in that way to me. There's like there's a title of a piece called Heaven is Being a Memory to Me. I'm just an old chunk of coal, but I'm going to become a diamond one day, uh-huh. you know? remember to remember. And I think that's 
I think that's why it's so admirable what both of you are doing, because you are keeping, you know, this memory, this person, you know, is bringing it forward so that we can all get to know this, this person or these people. Um, I want to turn now for a moment to um, public, you know, some of our public mourning and and grieving. Sarah Purcell, a professor and historian at Cornell College, has written a book entitled Spectacle of Grief, Public Funerals and Memory in the Civil War Era. And for example, she devotes a chapter to the mourning the life of Frederick Douglass, who was one of the first African-Americans to receive this kind of attention through mourning. And in these public, in these public events, they influence discussions of war, reconstruction, race, and gender. Uh, my beloved Uncle Jim wrote a, a parable about a situation in France when he was a medic during World War II. It's, it's, it's a wonderful story. I'm sorry, I, I can't, I don't have time to really tell it. But he writes, I have described as a symbol or perhaps even as a parable of the terrible events that were striking the world in those days. It helps me to put into perspective the enormity of the sufferings that I have trouble resolving in my mind. But he ends by writing the concept that even in man's dark side, we sometimes catch a glimpse of an ennobling spirit that kind of counterbalances the bad in man when you throw his good and this evil nature onto the scales. Um, there's a poem, Edward, in your book, A Hundred Poems to Break Your Heart, the the fifth eclogue and i and i thought that was i found that very beautiful and it seemed kind of appropriate to this time this is a poem would you like should i read it i would love to have you read it yes i'm reading it in an english translation um by uh, stephen polger stephen berg who was a poet and a friend and sj marx the poem is by Miklos Radnati, who is a Hungarian poet, an incredibly cultivated person. He had a, just a terrible death and short life. He, um, during the war, World War II in Hungary, he, um, he was writing a series of Virgilian eclogues um, about his experience. And the fifth eclogue, is about a friend of mine, a friend of his called uh, Georgi Balin, who's been lost at the front. And when I read it, just pay attention to the to the tenses um, uh, of what happens in this in this fifth epilogue, which is called a fragment to the memory of Georgi Balin. Dear friend, you don't know how cold this poem made me quake, how afraid I was of words. Even today, I tried to escape them. I wrote half lines. I tried to write about other things, but it was no use. This terrible hidden night calls me. Talk about him. Fear wakes me, but the voice is silent, like the dead out there in the Ukrainian fields. You're missing. And even autumn doesn't bring news. In the forest, the promise of another furious winter whistles today. In the sky, clouds heavy with snow fly past and halt. Who knows if you're alive? Even I don't know today. 
I don't shout angrily if they wave their hands painfully and cover their faces and don't know anything. But are you alive? Wounded? Do you walk among dead leaves, circled by the thick smell of forest mud? Or are you a smell too? Snow drifts over the fields. He's missing. The news hits. And inside my heart pounds, freezes. Between two of my ribs, a bad ripping pain starts up, quivers. And in my memories, words you spoke a long time ago come back sharply. And I feel your bodies as real as the dead's. And I still can't write about you today. November 21st, 1943. Mm. Beautiful poem. So, Edward, how did you put together these 100 poems? Um, it wasn't science. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I was, I was writing about poems. Uh, um, I, first of all, I was writing about poems I already loved. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't looking for poems. I, I was writing about poems that I already cared about and that I could write about passionately, um, as, as poems and also as human documents. But as I was, thinking about it, I was trying to represent different kinds of grief, both, as you say, private and public grief, poems for friends, poems for lovers, poems for the war dead, poems for dead children, poems of joy and memory, all different kinds of poems of grief, poems of loss for a people. And so I was writing about poems I cared about, but I was also trying to represent different kinds of grief that I thought were encapsulated in poems. It was quite it was it was quite hard to write intensively about so many poems. And many times I thought, now why didn't I just say 50 poems to break Because <laughs> <laughs> a hundred is a hundred is a lot. Hundreds a lot. Because I don't just write, I don't just include the poems, I write essays about each one. But I also was writing about poems from around the world. And um, because these poems are meaningful to me, there's a wonderful poem by Cesar Vallejo, who Diane mentioned, called Black Stone Lying on a White Stone, which predicts his own death on a Thursday, uh, mm -hmm. a sonnet. Um, and so I had Radnati in mind, and because and, I've loved his work since I was young. Um, but this particular poem, you notice that the poem is called To the Memory of Georgi Ballant, but then he keeps saying, I don't know if you're, you're, you're alive or you're mm -hmm. dead. There's that haunting line where he goes, or are you a smell too? Yeah. Um, he kind of knows. His unconscious knows, but his consciousness won't let him. And so mm -hmm. that's why the poem is a kind of struggle about what you know and what you can't let yourself know. Mm -hmm. So that seemed an original kind of not exactly an elegy to me. So I was just sort of ticking off in my mind different. I wasn't trying to be encyclopedic. I wasn't organizing it around different types of grief. But I had in mind different kinds of, 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 of personal and, and social grief. Now, were you writing this during the pandemic when, when we were shut down? Or had you started this book? No, I wrote this before. Um, I, I wrote this before. During the pandemic, I did write a book called The Heart of American Poetry, mm -hmm. which rethinks the project of American poetry 
in light of in in, in light of the pandemic mm-hmm. and in, in in light of the reemergence of systemic racism and a totalitarian threat to mm-hmm. to democracy three viruses um mm-hmm. but this book 100 poems to break your heart i was already it was already finished and put to bed mm-hmm. um but it did strike a chord because suddenly you know americans don't like to think about grief and and my book seemed like it was going to be a bit of a downer because it's so sad. But it, during the pandemic, it was inescapable. <laughs> and 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 people couldn't. I mean, everyone knows someone who died. I mean, you just could not get away with not thinking about it. Um, and so we were, as a country, completely unprepared. You might say. I mean, no one's prepared for the pandemic, but we were emotionally and spiritually unprepared because of our segmenting of grief. Um, it, 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 as if it's something to be ashamed of and something that you only do at funerals. But suddenly we couldn't do that. And so, I, I mean, I'm glad that 100 Poems to Break Your Heart came out and, and, and found readers because people were starting to, I think, look for something. The 100 Poems book I found really moving and striking and the range of it. Plus, the essays are incredible. I use yes. them almost as a tutorial, you know, for, of looking closely at a poem, at, at how the writer did this, how the writer kept things going. I, I, I just think it's an amazing book, and thank you for writing it. Thanks, Diane. The trick is to write about, to be aware that every, every poem in this book has a steep story. These are not just mm-hmm. language games. These are po- yeah. people writing about real griefs in their life. At the same time, they're not diary entries. They're poems. Yeah. They're made things. And so you try and write about them. as I, I was trying to write about them as human documents and works of art. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that, that, that's the key to me. Because they're, they're not just journalistic stories of what happened to people. They're, people are transforming their grief. In, in some way, into into art, right? As they grapple with it, yeah. As they grapple with it. Yeah, I agree with Diane. I when I got the book, I would get up and read a chapter a day so yeah, that Diana, I could learn more. It's too sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's too sad. It's too sad. <laughs> Diane, could you read another poem? Um, there's one called "The Hole in the Hill," perhaps. Yeah, I, I'll I'll read that. I I do want to say just briefly on the idea of public mourning. Morning for a brief moment, we had to grapple with Mondo's death being a public event because he was working for the Associated Press when he died. So there were a lot of news stories about him and a lot of demands. We were in Mexico City reclaiming the body and there were a lot of demands on us to appear on television and I worked very hard to not have that happen because I didn't I mean I wasn't thinking totally clearly as Ed knows but I wanted to have Mondo remembered in a different way than two sad parents on CNN and also we were worried about not uh, about the Mexican police paying so much attention. If there was too much attention, we might not be able to get the body out of Mexico. So we had this kind of brief moment of publicness that 
um, that we needed Walt Whitman for, not, <laughs> you know, not Raymond Chandler. <laughs> but anyway, here's the hole in the hill. It's the hole in the hill, El Hueco de la Huaca. She lives next to a hole, I thought she said, an archaeological dig that dominates her neighborhood, where someone uncovered bones of children who were killed to slave for the rich in the afterlife, bones of women who were rulers and sacrificial offerings, a civilization encased in dirt. I want to see this, to find out how someone digs for answers when people die. All morning I walk past jacarandas and corrugated fences until the sidewalk dead ends and a steep hill towers above the houses. On terraces hacked into the hillside stand bookshelves laden with books. Edging closer, I see no library, only earthen rectangles holding adobe bricks stacked upright like books. Air accumulated in the spaces in between has shored up the hill, kept it solid for 15 centuries. At the crest of the upturned hole, where the ocean and the Andes shimmer through light and dust, I have dredged no answers beyond my own confusion. As air gathers around phantom texts, I begin the descent toward home. When did you write this poem, Diane? I wrote, I wrote that, and it was another poem I wrote in Lima, and yeah. it was um, a way to express how it was four years after Mundo died, but it was, it, it was still a very confusing. A, a grief is confusing. It's it's just beautifully chaotic. Chaotic, yeah, and 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 I was trying to figure out, trying to make sense of it and trying to figure out what, how other people made fit sense of it. And mm -hmm. um, this was kind of a metaphor for my confusion. Well, I thank both of you. I, um, I, I hope that we've helped people understand how they can use and read poetry to think through their own grief their own sadness or their own loss. We're looking for a language to help us and console us. Nothing will bring the person back. That's just a reality. Music, art, poetry in particular, can help articulate your feelings and name them. They can help the poems of your own, but also the poems of others can give you a language for something that you was otherwise nameless and very hard to pin down. And poems of great sadness don't make me sadder. They're consoling to me that someone else is articulating something that I feel. They gave, give me a name for something that I don't otherwise have a name for. And therefore, they're, they're helpful. And that's why I believe they companion you. They help guide you on your way. You still have your own path and you still have your own grief and you still have your own loss. Nothing will repair that. But they can help give you a name for what you're experiencing and what you felt. And that's a kind of that's a kind of comfort.
Diane, you must feel great comfort now that you that you now have this poetry. I'm sure you have not stopped after the, your book was published. I mean, you you continue to write. Oh, it's it's so important. I, I when I first my very first poetry class, I was in deep in it was a year after Mundo died, and I was deep in this zombie state. And so I told the poet Chris Rancic, who was the teacher. I sent him a message and said, look, I'm going through this, but this is what I'm going through. And I don't want to be a downer in the conversation. So would it be okay if I joined your class? And he said, well, he wrote back this very kind note. And he said, well, this is what poetry does. And I knew so little about poetry that I didn't fully grasp the fact that a lot of poetry is about grief, about putting grief into words. And that was tremendously important. Um, and it, it also said that he, uh, when he was writing about Gabriel, he felt closer to Gabriel in that period. And it, it's not, and I, I felt the same way. I mean, Mondo's not coming back, but I felt like I got to know Mondo even better by putting what I knew about him in words and in reading his writing and, and deciphering his writing. And his friends sent me stories they'd written about him or told me stories of things they'd done with him. And all that, all that at this, at that point is words, but that's important. That's all we have. And I appreciate it when they're particularly beautiful and moving, which is what poetry can do. Thank you. Thank you to both of you for this conversation. Thanks, Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.